when it comes to who you belong to and where you will end up, but what you're doing with him and how you're worshiping him. You don't go to hell for being a liar and a coward. You go to hell for not persevering in your faith with Christ. And that's the point. Verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven final plagues came and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me away in the spirit to a huge majestic mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. This is interesting. This is the last of the three I heard and then I looked and I saw. Just like John heard the trumpet and then looked and saw Jesus in his glorified state, meaning that the two are the same. Then in chapter 5, he heard that the Lion of Judah was worthy to open the seals, but then he saw the Lamb, meaning that they're both one and the same. John now hears that the bride is coming down, but then when he sees, he sees a city. And we've already seen that. Here we mentioned how the city came down, and when I saw it was a bride being prepared. So now he's reemphasizing the fact that the city of Jerusalem is not a literal physical city, but it's the bride of Christ. They are one and the same. And when he looked, it was a city coming as a majestic mountain. Now we talked about this already. At the very beginning, all the gods lived high up on mountains, vertically and horizontally separated from the people. People were not worthy to come to the mountain. But God created his mountain, the Garden of Eden, and he flattened it out and he put Adam and Eve right on it. Now I don't know how flat it was, but it's not like an Everest and Adam and Eve are living on the teeny little peak, like the emperor's new groove or something. The idea is that it was flattened out enough that they could live with him. But we lost that. So God then appears to them on Mount Sinai as the cosmic mountain, then Mount Zion as the cosmic mountain in Jerusalem. And then in Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 2, he talks about the day that a day is coming when God will bring people from all the nations to the cosmic mountain of God. And we will all dwell on the cosmic mountain of God with him. And we will all be in an intimate relationship with him face to face. And now we see that. We saw the believers in chapter 7 and 14 sealed and on the cosmic mountain with God. But now we're seeing it all come together. They're not on a cosmic mountain in heaven with God anymore. They're on the cosmic mountain on earth with God. Everything is coming back together. Body and spirit, heaven and earth, God and humans, cosmic mountain down to the land. Everything is coming back together. This is the remarriage of everything. The city possesses the glory of God. Its brilliance is like a precious jewel, like the stone of crystal clear jasper. Now remember, crystal clear does not mean crystal clear. It means sparkly. We talked about that with the sea of glass that was crystal clear. It actually doesn't mean it's clear. It means it's sparkly. It's a jasper stone that is sparkling. It's wow and dazzle. Now here's what's interesting. The only other time that we have seen the jasper stone in Revelation was at the throne of God in chapter 4 of Revelation. When it's now to talking about the city possesses the glorious brilliance like a precious jewel, like a stone of sparkly jasper, 
The believers are the city, which means the believers are the sparkly jasper stone. And the only place we've ever seen the jasper stone is the throne of God, which means the believers are at the literal throne of God. They are no longer separated by a chaotic sea, like in chapter 4. They are no longer separated by the four living creatures and the elders and the cherubim and all these things. They are now right at the throne of God. They are right at the throne of God because there is no more sin. And that, this is where it just keeps getting cooler and cooler and cooler as God layers more and more ideas. It's like those transparencies as you keep layering another one, like this body transparency, the skeleton, the nervous system, the muscles, the skin, and God is just layering another one on another one to give you a more deeper, intimate idea of what it is. Verse 12, it has a massive high wall. Now, the whole point of a wall is security. So this city is going to be secure. What is your greatest desire as a human? To be accepted, secure, and have a purpose. And now you are at the throne, which means you're accepted. And this high wall is secure. With 12 gates, three, 12 gates, with the 12 angels at the gates, and the names of the 12 tribes of the nations of Israel are written on the gates. Gates means that it's possible to get in. So this is not a walled city to keep people out. Later we're going to be told that the gates are always open. So even though the walls communicate the idea of security, the idea is that all the nations are invited to come in. Now this goes back to Ezekiel's vision of the temple. In chapters 41 to the end of the book of Ezekiel, he has a vision of a temple. And the original temple, tabernacle, had one gate in the east. And it was always closed unless you were part of the Abrahamic covenant and you had an animal sacrifice. Ezekiel has a vision of a new temple. And this new temple is huge. And it has a gate on each side of the temple, one facing every single direction. And the walls are really tiny, and the gates are really big. Walls keep people out, gates bring people in. The idea is that people are going to come in from all four corners of the earth. Then we're told that the prince is sitting in the gate of the temple. The prince is not allowed to be in this gate of the temple. That's a violation of the Mosaic law. King and priest cannot both function at the same time. But Zechariah had a vision of king and priest coming together. And so the prince is the high priest, which is Christ. And that's already been talked about in Zechariah chapters 3. Then we're told that a river flowed out of the side of the temple and went down to the Dead Sea, turned everything into flourishing life, and then broke out and filled the entire earth, removing all evil and all sin and all death on earth. Now, many people thought that this is a vision of the temple being rebuilt after it got destroyed. No, 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 no. That's not the idea. Jesus comes along and he says, I'm tabernacling among you. I'm the tabernacle. And then in chapter 2, he says, you turn my father's house and den to thieves. Of John, chapter 2. And he says, tear down this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And it says, they did not know that he was talking about his body. So he calls it my father's house. Now that was not okay with the Jews. Yahweh is master, Lord, not father, Abba. That's offensive. So he says, my father's house. And then he says, the father's house is his body. 
At the very end of John, he comes back to the temple again and overturns the tables again. But this time he says, you've turned my house into a den of thieves, making it very clear that the temple is him. Then in John chapter 14, he says, I am going away. And where I'm going, you cannot follow, but I'll return again. Where I'm going is to die. And Peter's like, oh, you're not going to die. He's like, yeah, I will. And Peter's like, I'll go with you. Really, Peter, can you drink from the cup of wrath that I am about to drink from? He makes it very clear that where he's going, he's going to the cross. And when he comes back, it's going to be his resurrection and appearances. And then he says, I'm going to a way. He says, in my father's house are many rooms, not mansions. It's a horrible understanding. In my father's house are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you. And we've also been taught that Jesus is going to die on the cross for you, then go to heaven and prepare a nice little room with you with the sheets rolled down and Andy's mint on the pillow, ready for you to come one day when you die. Right? That's not what he's talking about. John already told you what he's talking about. He made it very clear that the Father's house is his body. He made it very clear that the Father's house is me. He says, my body, my temple, the Father's house, the Father's temple. It's my body. He's made that very clear. He's made it very clear where he's going is the cross and then coming back, not heaven. Not the saying he doesn't go to heaven ultimately, but that's what he's making clear. He's never talked about heaven ever in any of this context. So what's the point? The point is that the tabernacle had one room that God dwelt in. And only one guy, one time a year, the high priest could go into it. And all you got to see was a bunch of smoke and fire. And Jesus says, I'm going to the cross to prepare a room for you. Because in my father's house, this temple that I'm going to destroy and rebuild in three days has many rooms. And when he dies on the cross, what happens? The veil in the temple tears. Meaning that the way to God is now open through Christ. And all in that context of chapter 14, Christ says, remain in me and I'll remain in you. Everything's telling you what he's talking about. He means having an intimate relationship with him the minute he's raised from the dead. Access to him in a way that nobody ever had. Yes, ultimately you will go to heaven and be with him, and it will be better. And yes, ultimately we'll be on earth when the kingdom of God comes down, and it will be even better. But what he's talking about is not one day, but now. In literal three days, my father's house will have more rooms. And when they crucified him, not only did the veil tear, but they stabbed him in the side and the water came out, just like Ezekiel's vision. And then we're told by John that that is the Holy Spirit of God being poured out on the nations. So then, when he's raised from the dead and he begins to appear, and he says, wait for the other to come. And in Acts chapter 2, what happens? Little pillars of fire come down and start settling down on everybody's head making them all holy of holies. Every single one of them in that moment becomes a room in the Father's house. And God is dwelling in. We're told by Peter that we are the temple of God. We're told by Ephesians in chapter 2 that we are the dwelling of God. And we're told that the Holy Spirit is going to come in and dwell us. All three members of the Trinity live us. We are the holy of holies. We are the many rooms walking around. And just like he is the temple, and we're now living stones being built into him as a cornerstone, 1 Peter chapter 2, 
we become living stones and living holy of holies. And there was one Shekinah glory of God that came down in one teeny little room for one guy to go into once a year. But at Pentecost, many Shekinah glory of gods came down in many rooms so that every human that accept Christ could be in with Christ remaining in him and then remaining him. All made possible by Jesus being the new temple that Ezekiel envisioned. And that's what he's talking about here. This temple. And it's coming down, and you're a part of it. And the 12 gates. So John, Ezekiel had a vision of the gates facing out. And now there are 12 gates. And these are the 12 tribes of Israel. Because they're the ones that made the gates possible for us. Because without them, we would have no word of God. We would have no birth of Jesus Christ. And so they are the gates that make it possible for us to come to Christ. The first testament is the way that we come into the presence of God. And it has a massive high wall with 12 gates. The nations of Israel were in on the gates. There were three gates on the east side, three gates on the north side, three gates on the south side, and three gates on the west side. The wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So it also has 12 foundations, but this time it's the 12 names of the apostles. The church. And we talked about this. I really believe that the 144,000 is a multiple of 12 times 12. The 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of the First Testament, the Old Covenant law, that lay the groundwork for the 12 disciples to come along for the New Covenant that is the church. The 12 gates represent Israel, and the 12 foundations represent the church being grafted together. And this time it's not a tree that we're being grafted into. It's a temple that we're being grafted into or built into. A room addition. DIY. Flip this house. Okay? But it's you. It's the body of Christ. And they're both coming together to be the same thing, just like chapter 7, where we have the 144,000 Israel and the uncountable people from every tribe and language, the great multitude, the Gentiles, the church. And they're now both in this, Jews and Gentiles coming together. Is every Gentile there as a Christian? No. Is every Jew there as a Christian? No. But are Jews and Gentiles there as believers? Yes. Are they the body of Christ? Yes. And the angel spoke to me. So this is what he hears. And then this is what he sees. The people of God are the city. Just like what makes your house, your house is your household. Your house all by itself is just a building. But when your household is there, that's when it really truly becomes home. What makes the city, the city that you want to be in, is the people of God. The angel, verse 15, who had spoke to me, had a golden measuring rod with which to measure the city and its foundation stones in the wall. Now the city it laid on was a square and length and width and the same. And he measured the city with a measuring rod at 1400. So this is a perfect cube. And we're told the measurements. 12,000 stadia. That's a measurement length. 12,000, once again, we have the idea of the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples. But to give you an idea of how big this is, it's 1,400 miles. Or about 2,200 kilometers. Wide, long, and high. That's wide long and high. I don't think we're meant to take these numbers literally. I don't think this city goes 1,400 miles up into the air. I don't think it covers the earth. 
in that kind of a way. What about everything outside of this city? I don't think numbers are ever literal in the book of Revelation as apocalyptic literature. But the idea is the 12,000. It's the 12 tribes. It's the 12 disciples. But I think the main idea is that this is a perfect cube. The only other time that we ever see a perfect cube in the Bible. Remember, everything in Revelation is built on a previous idea. The only time that we ever see a perfect cube is the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. It was 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. It was a perfect cube. And I think the idea is, this is the Holy of Holies. It's the new city of Jerusalem where God promised to fulfill his covenant promises. It's the bride of Christ, the actual people who are now the temple and the body of Christ. But it's also the Holy of Holies. Not only are we our own Holy Holies with God, but we all make up the ultimate Holy of Holies, the city of God. And now it's open to all people who have accepted Christ. And this is the idea that is being communicated. That it's 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. 12 being a number of the people of God. 10 being a number of completion. And 10 three times is a number of redemption. It's the redeemed, complete people of God are now the Holy of Holies. And we're all dwelling there together on a good earth where there is no more sin, no more devil, no more death, no more suffering, and we're dwelling with God on earth. This goes back to Ezekiel as well, because when Ezekiel has a vision of the temple, he's told to measure it, and we're given all these dimensions. And so what God is doing is he's measuring it now to kind of give you the idea that these are one of the same. This is the temple that he's been talking about. And where the temple was more metaphorical when Jesus fulfilled on the cross This is going to be a little bit more literal. It's still metaphorical because it's not an actual temple. It's not an actual city. It's the people. But it's going to be a little bit more literal because there's actually going to be a river actually truly coming out of this one. Now, the wall was 144 um, cubits, the idea of 12 times 12. Once again, he lists all these precious, precious stones. Verse 18, the city's wall was made of jasper and the city is pure gold like transparent glass. Gold represents the glory of God. The foundation of the city's walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh um, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacknith, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates of the twelve are twelve pearls. Each one of the gates is made from just one pearl. The main street of the city is pure gold like transparent glass. Here's what's really cool. In your, the notes or on my website, you can see these twelve gemstones. And there's a picture of them. And you may look at it and you may think, wow, that's not all what those gemstones look like. That looks like a rainbow kaleidoscope. I have never seen jasper or sapphire look like that. Well, that's, there's a reason for that. In the past century, we have discovered that gems can be classified as anisotropic or isotropic. Anisotropic or isotropic. Those are big fancy words that basically mean this. When light comes from the sun or fire or a light bulb, 
and it travels, it travels as waves. Okay, now it gets a little bit more complicated than that with particles, but that's a whole other conversation. But it travels waves, and it reflects or bounces in all different directions. So when it hits a surface, it will reflect and bounce in all different directions off the stone or off the object or that kind of stuff. When this light passes through isotropic gemstones, it goes straight through at the same speed from all different directions. So the light coming all different angles just goes straight through with no deviation of path at the same speed no matter what. That's isotropic gems. When light passes through anisotropic gemstones, the light separates into two polarized rays and travels in different speed at different angles called refraction. You can see this by placing a polarized lens over the gemstone as the light is going through. Think polarized sunglasses. If you're taking your sunglasses and look through something, it kind of shades it. But if you ever looked at your iPhone or computer and tilt them sideways, every, the, the screen changes a completely different color, okay? Because it's polarized. It filters the light one direction and then filters it differently the different direction. So isotropic gemstones, when light goes through, it goes in all different directions does not slow down, does not change angles, and just passes through. But anisotropic gemstones, the light goes in, it refracts and angles off in different directions. It splits into wavelengths, two wavelengths that you can see through polarized lens, and it travels at different speeds. And the only way you can see this is with modern day technology of polarized lens and, um, and all that kind of stuff. And it almost becomes like a laser, like a laser beam as it's coming out. What is interesting is that when you look at isotropic lens gemstones with polarized lens, they're just gray. They're just gray. Diamonds, you put light through it. They might be really sparkling cool hanging in your window. Not that a lot of you got diamonds hanging in your window or reflecting off of your ring. But when you look, when, when light goes through it and you look at it through polarized lens, it just looks gray. That's it. But Anna and isotropic gemstones, they turn into a rainbow of colors. They cease to be their red of a ruby or their green of a sapphire or blue of a sapphire, and they turn into this kaleidoscope of rainbows, and they refract the light out in all these different colors of rainbow. And what's interesting is that diamonds are nowhere in the Bible. Isotropic gemstones are never mentioned, but anisotropic gemstones are mentioned. And the diamond that has the most value to us has the least value in the kingdom of God. And the idea is that the 12 foundations and the, all this stuff are these anisotropic gemstones. And when God comes down and dwells on earth with us and his light hits it, it's going to refract and it's going to reduce all the colors of the rainbow and this glorious state. And it's only through recent technology that we've realized why these stones and not other stones. And not only that, these are the 12 gemstones of the high priest's breastplate. When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he was to put on a breastplate that had 12 stones, each representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And the idea is when he went into the Holy of Holies, he was taking Israel in on his heart even though they couldn't literally go with him. But now we're being told that we are the temple of God. We are the holy of holies. We are these gemstones. We are its foundations and gates. 
and we are all there and we're going to shine like the rainbow when God's light hits us. Daniel chapter 9 tells us that when we get to heaven, we will shine like the stars. But this time, we're going to shine like anisotropic stars with all the colors. And the idea is just to communicate absolute beauty. Is it going to be way cooler than this? Heck yes. But John is stretching the language of human understanding in vocabulary and likes to just kind of paint a picture of how amazing and how glorious it's going to be. This is the idea that's being communicated. Each gate is made up of a pearl. We don't really know what pearls mean. What's interesting is pearls don't really have any mention or value in the Greek world or in the biblical world. Pearls don't ever show up in the First Testament. They don't show up in the Greek world at all. They don't really seem to have any mention in literature. The only time that we ever really see a pearl is a pearl of great cost. When, when Jesus tells the parable that the kingdom of God is like a man, finds a pearl in the field, sells everything he has to buy the field so he can just have the pearl. That's the only time that it's ever mentioned. And so maybe the idea is just that this is something that you're willing, should be willing, to sell everything for. This is the great pearl price. It's the Holy of Holies. It's the body of Christ. And that seems to be the idea here. Um, that is being communicated. Verse 22. Now I saw no temple in this city, because Yahweh, because the Lord, the God all-powerful, and the Lamb are its temple. Now, you're like, wait a minute, all this has been temple language, right? The city of Jerusalem, the temple coming down, the Holy of Holies, and all that kind of stuff. And John, and when all the people would expect the temple, if, if you're an early date of revelation, you're anticipating the temple being destroyed one day because Jesus told you. And when the temple does get destroyed, you're like, oh, the temple, right? It's coming back. If you're post-destruction temple, late day, late date revelation, then the temple's already been destroyed, and you're longing for it to come back. And you're like, here it is. And then John dumps this theological bomb on you and says, and there was no temple. All the temple and holy of holy language is to communicate your intimacy with God that you will have in this new heaven and earth but not that there will be a temple. Because the Lamb is your temple. And this is where it makes it clear that the God and the Lamb are both there. Remember from the very beginning, there was no temple. There was a Garden of Eden. It was, it was described in tabernacle-like language. There was a hedge, like a fence around it. They were to work until it. The words work until used in Genesis are the same words used of guard and keep of the Levites in the tabernacle. There was a gate that faced the east. There were cherubim there. They walked with God. It was tabernacle language. Then when God comes along, he builds them a tabernacle. Well, he doesn't build. He gives them instructions, very, very detailed instructions for how to build a tabernacle. And then David comes along in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and says, I want to build God a temple, a house. I have a great house. He doesn't. He just has his tent. And you know what God says? No. No. If I ever wanted a temple, he says, I would have asked for a temple. And all the days that I've been around, I've never asked for a temple. And if I never asked for a temple, I don't want a temple. So no. But then he goes in and says, I will build you a house. Dave's already got a house. But he uses genealogy language. I will make your line last forever. And they will always be kings on the throne. And I will give you offspring and descendants. House. Hold. 
And one day your son will come along and he will build me a true house. Hold. And David misunderstood that, or he willingly misunderstood it. And he began to gather supplies for a temple, even though God told him not to. And so what did Solomon do? He built the temple, even though God told him not to. And you know what he did with that temple? He built it to look like a pagan Phoenician temple. And then he put graven images of bulls and ox in it, a violation of the Ten Commandments. He built it with work stones. And God said in the tabernacle, don't ever fashion anything with your own tools, any stone or any altar. And he did that. Not only that, he put the cherubim in it, and it said the cherubim overshadowed the Ark of Covenant. They were bigger, and they were over top of God's presence. He used forced labor to do it. God said the only willing volunteers are allowed to build the tabernacle. He used pagans to build it. Only the people of the Abrahamic covenant were allowed to build it. He put his spirit on two specific persons to build the tabernacle. Nobody had the Holy Spirit when they built the temple. And not only that, he was never given any instructions for how to build it. He built it exactly the way he wanted. And so Jesus comes along, and you know what happened? The tabernacle never got attacked. It never got invaded. It never got to... But then when Solomon builds the temple, by the time he died, it gets invaded, it gets attacked, and it gets attacked and invaded over and over and over and over again until Ezekiel has a vision of a new temple, Jesus. And now God's coming along and saying, See, I told you, I did not want a temple. And there is no temple because Jesus is the temple. And this is the point that Stephen was making in chapter 7 when he gave the speech. He lists all these things that the Jews did wrong. They rebelled against God in the wilderness. They rebelled here and they rebelled here. And then they built a temple for God. And we all know that God doesn't get contained in temples. And then you kill Jesus. And even Stephen got, God doesn't want a temple. And now the Garden of Eden is restored. And we don't need a temple because we and Jesus are the temple. And the only reason he's using temple language is because that's all the Jews know. The tabernacle is dead and gone. In the book of Hebrews, he uses the tabernacle to talk about Christ, not the temple. And so he uses temple language so that they get what he's talking about. But then he drops the bomb on them and says, but this isn't about a temple. This is about being with God. This is about being in the presence of God. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God lights it up and the lamp is the lamp. Now, how literal is this? I don't know. But the idea is you don't need it. Maybe the sun will still be there because God created it and it's a pretty cool, awesome thing that's been around for a long time. He's not about destroying things. But I think the idea is you won't need it because the light of the Lamb will literally physically be here with us and it will outshine the sun. And the sun was created to produce light and to govern the day and the night. And God is now going to be here on earth to govern everything. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their grandeur into it. There's the idea that there's still going to be hierarchy in this new heaven and earth, but a hierarchy that's good, a hierarchy that's the vice regents of God. Its gates will never be closed during the day, and there will be no more night there. They will bring the grandeur of the wealth and the nations into it. But nothing richly unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or practice falsehood, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb Book of Life. There will be no more night. Night is symbolic of darkness. Light is symbolic of sin and rebellion 
and evil. And it will be no more there. Nothing unclean will enter. Now you have to understand in the Bible, in Leviticus, unclean is used in two different ways. Unclean is used to refer to those who actually commit sin. And unclean is also used of those who come in contact with sin. So you become unclean when you sin, but you also become unclean when you touch a dead body, which is the result of sin in the world. You, that, that person didn't die because they sinned and God killed them. You're not a sinner for touching them, but the only reason that anybody's ever died is because sin is in the world. You become unclean if you have a skin disease or touch somebody with a skin disease because that's the result of sin. You become unclean if you touch bodily discharges of bleeding or something like that because that's the result of sin. Or, like a woman's menstrual period, that's not the result of sin, but that blood is unclean and can have diseases in it because of sin. Or if you're bleeding out from a wound, you're not sinning for bleeding, you're not a sinner for having blood, but your blood is now unhealthy, possible, contaminated. This way we wear gloves and put masks on, da-da-da-da, because of sin. And so what he's saying by saying there's no more unclean, it means there's nothing that will have any connection to sin in any kind of way. Nothing sinful will ever